Take your Bible and turn to Genesis, and um, we're going to look at Genesis 21. We're going to cover two chapters this morning, 20 and 21, but the passage we're going to read together to start out with is going to be in 21. So chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, title of our message this morning is the ever-present, or the everlasting, ever-present God. Chapter 21, verse 1, says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Last Sunday I had a really cool opportunity to... Um, be a part of a young man's uh, ordination service with his church in Radford. Um, Saturday, uh, a lot of times in our circles, the way ordination occurs is that a local church recognizes uh, a gifting and a call in a young man's life, and they will get a gathering of uh, pastors, that have also been ordained, that um, will come together and do like a council to ask questions and um, just to make sure doctrinally sound, that he's walking with God, um, those important type things. And I got to be a part of that Saturday and a part of that Sunday. And part of my friend's Eli's testimony, and when he was describing his call to God, is that he, his call from God is that he saw throughout his life different times where God had planted these seeds that were equipping him for ministry. And of course, it all culminated in a, a clear compulsion to preach God's word and to um, participate and serve in full-time ministry. But he could look back and he could see those different seeds that were being planted in just during everyday life. We are in basketball season, right? It's almost time for March Madness. All the conference tournaments and uh, the the national tournament, the big dance. Um, one of the most exciting things that can happen during March Madness are last-second shots. Historically, probably my favorite or one of my favorites was Duke versus Kentucky. Grant Hill threw a long one-handed pass all the way down to the free throw line on the other side of the court where Christian Leitner caught it, spun around, jumped, shot, and the bucket went in. As exciting as those last-second shots can be, for every last-second shot in a basketball game like that, there are 2,399 other seconds in the game that are part of the process. And even beyond that, 
Before someone is the hero and goes down as a legend for their school, there are the grueling practices. There are the, the missed final shots that you don't see in rec and AAU and high school and all of those things that, that lead up to that moment. This morning we're talking about how God is very much present in the mundane parts of our lives. The theme of Genesis, if you're going to really simplify it, it's to love and obey God. Uh, Chapter 12, when we get to chapter 12, it records promises that are made to Abraham from God. And the following chapters, 12 and on to even where we are today, they are recounting the twists and the turns in Abraham's life before God actually fulfills part of those promises, specifically the aspect of the promise of him having a son and a great nation coming from him. Abraham would not live to see in this life the great nation, but he would live to see the fulfillment of the promise of the son. So last week we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, God's destruction. God is vindicated. God is righteous to judge this world's system. And we saw that especially in chapter 19. And these events here in chapter 20 and 21 that we're looking at this morning uh, are really kind of right on the heels of that. They're at least less than a, a year than the, from the events that, or that occurred at Sodom and Gomorrah. So big idea this morning, God does not abandon us in the mundane. God does not abandon us in the mundane. Let's look at chapter 20, verse 1. It says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Does this episode sound familiar already? Um, Something like this has already happened. In their lives. Um, You go back to uh, after the call of Abraham, they go down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land, and Abraham is anxious and kind of panicky about the the famine, but he's also he also feels threatened. He he thinks there's a possibility that the men of Egypt would be jealous of his wife and want to marry her and kill him off. And so he passed the story on that she was his sister, which there is some partial truth to that. She was a half-sister in that time of the patriarchs that occurred from time to time, that intermarrying between half-siblings. But here we come to chapter 20, and this is a whole other episode. It's a completely distinct episode where Abraham and Sarah are doing the same thing again. It says in verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. This is God speaking through a dream to Abimelech, the man who had taken, which is, this is no fault of his own. Sarah is at least about 90 years old at this time kind of makes you think that this is probably more for pragmatic political ties and reasons that he would take Abraham's 
sister because Abraham has a growing family and a growing clan of his own. It says in verse 4, Abimelech's response, Now Abimelech had not approached her, euphemism, they had not had a sexual uh, intercourse. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. There's a bit of irony here. Some, some kind of prophet Abraham is. He's a lying prophet. I think when we talked about the first episode in Egypt, um, it was a half-truth but full deception. But Abraham is going to have to intercede on behalf of Abimelech and his household um, to where, at this point, God is withholding the women from um, conceiving. Verse 8, So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. So Abraham has a wrong assumption from the very get-go in this relationship with Abimelech. He he thought, he assumed, there's no fear of God. But we see the very opposite is true. God, in fact, comes to Abimelech in a dream, and Abimelech is very afraid, very frightened. And so here's this assumption that Abraham was making that was not true. It was an irrational fear and anxiety that was not based on reality. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. What this means was he was giving Abraham gifts in uh, monetary form, but also in cattle. And all of this was to express to everyone around them that he had not gone into Sarah. He had not even touched her um, so that she was still merely pure, which would be important for the promise, right, that God had made. That, that, that this promised son that Abraham was going to have was going to come through Sarah. They had already tried the Agar and Ishmael thing, and God says, no, that's not the route we're taking. It's going to come through Sarah. Verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God, 
and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. All right, so God does not abandon us in the mundane. The first arena we see that in is that God does not abandon us in times of irrational fear. Something that many of us uh, deal with. And in that irrational fear that Abraham has, these anxieties, um, he decides, like he has in several other points in his life, to kind of take matters into his own hand, to lean on his own wisdom. Derek Kidner said, um, it is clear that, uh, that Abraham had only asked himself, what will this do for me? Stifling the reflections or uh, rejecting even to meditate or to question, what will it do to them? What do they deserve? And what are the facts? Isn't that what happens when we have irrational fear? We think immediately in that second, what can make me more secure? What can make me feel more comfortable? What can get me out from under this threatening situation right now? And we become self-centered. There would be several times in, in Israel's history as they go through the wilderness after the exodus in these times of fear. One case, Moses is up on the mountain. And they're like, what in the world is... Has happened to Moses. Maybe he's perished at the hand of God. And they talk Aaron into building uh, this golden calf and they bow down and worship it, saying, This is Yahweh. This is Yahweh in physical form who delivered us from Egypt. But there are other times where they were afraid. They were afraid that God was not going to sustain their needs, what um, what they needed daily. And there would be rebellions, there would be complaining and criticisms and everything to the point that eventually God said, nope, I'm done with this generation. It's going to be their kids that go into the promised land. But God does not abandon us in the mundane, and he doesn't even abandon us in the the times of irrational fear. He's still there, he's still present. Maybe it's mundane or, or even traumatic things like dealing with some kind of health issue, a cancer scare or a cancer treatment or um, some kind of issue with a, a child. God doesn't abandon us. It might seem like our prayers aren't getting beyond the ceiling, but that's just the feeling. That's not fact. All right, God does not abandon us in the mundane. He does not Uh, abandon us in times of irrational fear. God does not abandon us in our aging, in the aging process. Look at verse 1. This is, um, it's it's a little baffling to me that this is how uh, God had Moses record this because this is all leading to this big moment where God's promise is fulfilled and he, he just speaks of it really quickly. And the reason is because he's got so much more ground to cover um, to make theological, um, reveal theological truths about God in the lives of Jacob and then even his sons. So, verse 1 um, it says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age 
at the time of which God had spoken to him. And there's a lot of biological things that have to occur and be reversed or whatever uh, in order for God to make this occur. But we see something that is in common with these two verses here and the chapter in front of us that we just read is that God is in control of the womb in both cases. Verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. It means laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Imagine dropping your infant son off at preschool when you're a hundred years old. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So what we're looking at here, this is a very unlikely thing. Humanly, this is impossible. This doesn't happen where a 90-year-old woman, even at that time, bears children. It's very unlikely. Came across a story this week of American Staff Sergeant Alan Maggie, I guess is how you say his last name. He fell from 20,000 feet during World War II and survived. Um, I'm just going to read this article that I found. It says, in January of 1943, Maggie was a ball turret gunner in a B-17 flying fortress on a bombing run on the Atlantic coast of Nazi-occupied France. During the raid, his plane took enemy fire and broke up. Acting, acting quickly, Maggie escaped his turret and jumped from, flaming, from the flaming bomber without a parachute. Because of the altitude, Maggie lost consciousness mid-fall before smashing through a glass roof at a train station. Hours later, he awoke to find German doctors putting him back together. His injuries included a broken right leg, a broken ankle a nearly severed arm, and 28 shrapnel wounds from shards of glass. But he survived. But Abraham and and, uh, Sarah's story here is even more improbable than that. And that's kind of the point. And that's kind of the purpose and the reason that God chose to do this the way he did it. To show the uniqueness and the calling on Abraham and his family's life. That God had specially touched that family. And would not be the last time that God would specially touch someone for a pregnancy. In the Bible, Elizabeth, as an older uh, lady, would, the same thing would happen. And then, of course, our Savior was conceived in the womb of a virgin. And, of course, those were special kids, Right? But all this to say God keeps his promises. And part of mundane things of life is you look up one day, and even though you feel like it and you still consider yourself like that, you're not a 17-year-old anymore. You're not an 18-year-old anymore. Heck, you're not even 30 anymore. But aging, it's a part of, of, of life, and it's a difficult thing that we, we go through. I'm 36 years old. People tell me, you just wait, Kevin. You just wait. Um, but at age 17, I had a pacemaker and was my, the youngest patient at my cardiologist's office. I would look around, and 
to be honest, let's be honest, most of the people that were around me when I was 17 at those cardiology visits, they're not with us anymore, okay? Uh, and the reason was I was the youngest patient in the cardiology office. But aging happens to us all. None of us can outlive. Even Tom Brady eventually had to retire, right? We thought he was going to be an exceptional case for a while, But aging is difficult, and the conversations that I've had with, with, of course, grandparents and other people, other friends that have been part of the churches that I've, I've been at, it can, can be a lonely thing. You get, reach a point in your life where it feels like life starts taking away instead of giving. Um, I heard the testimony of a lady this week who recently lost both her mom and her sister And she's running out of people that she can recall memories with. She can recall these stories and tell these stories to people, but there's no one to share those first-person experiences with anymore. And some of you are going through something like that. But God has not abandoned you. God has not abandoned us in the process of aging, even when we start to lose the, the physical control of our faculties and stuff. Those who have to deal with Alzheimer's and, and other things. God does not abandon us. Even in this short little season where we, we lose memories and, and stuff. God is still there. He is still present and he is still faithful. And it is just that. It's a short season of life. Remember that. We have the hope that is before us. And God giving us glorified bodies. It's just a short season, as the rest of this life is. So God doesn't abandon us in the mundane part of life with aging, but he doesn't abandon us in the wilderness either. Look at this in verse 8. By wilderness, there's a physical wilderness here, and then Israel would go through a physical wilderness for 40 years, and it would be that following generation that would experience the promised land. Um, But wilderness can also be the text. It can also have, this is a literal wilderness, but it can also have this metaphorical sense of dryness and difficulty, and that's not a coincidence here. So verse 8, there's relational conflict that's going on. Remember when Sarah had this bright idea, I'm not able to get pregnant, so why don't you use my handmaid? And Abraham was like, okay. And a baby came out of that, Ishmael, whom God still said, Hey, you're Abraham's offspring. You're still going to be blessed. The promised son isn't coming from, from Hagar, but you're going to be blessed. So verse 8, and the child grew, talking about Isaac, and was weaned. So he's a couple years old at least. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But everything is not okay But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Um, Laughing is here is the word, Hebrew word can mean laughing, but the context here and even Paul's interpretation of this in Galatians, uh, it's a little bit more malicious than laughing and having a good time at a party. It is a, a mocking. In fact, the word Paul chooses to use is persecution explaining this situation. Um, So there is something malicious going on here between 
and that Ishmael is directing at this probably toddler Isaac. And Ishmael is a teenager at this point, maybe 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, Teenagers can be ruthless, especially to younger siblings. Verse 10, so she said to Abraham, Sarah, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Sarah goes mama bear. Um, and this feels very ruthless to us. But let's continue to read the text. Verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose up. Here's something very difficult for Abraham to do. Next week we'll see something that's also very difficult. But Abraham trusts God and believes God. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Agar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child. And she sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Like I said, this seems ruthless, but Alan, Alan P. Ross points out in Genesis 21, the laughter was the response, or the mocking was the response of faith to the promise of God. But the mockery signified the response of unbelief in God's plan that Isaac should be the heir. So you have this response of Ishmael that is mocking and persecuting uh, Isaac because he doesn't believe that the promise is going to actually come through him. And Sarah recognizes this as the threat that it is. And God even affirms Sarah's um, observations. Alan Ross goes on to say, the divine approval of sending away Agar and Ishmael was a sign not of divine abandonment. Not of divine abandonment of Ishmael, but of protection for Isaac. And notice here, it's God that does the sending. Has God ever felt cruel in your life? Where you look up and you find yourself in a situation, and you're like, oh God... It is too much. Why would you do this to me? And this isn't a a fun truth. This is a hard truth that God sometimes sends us into wilderness situations. You're not going to hear that from a lot of televangelists. I'm sure that's not what you came here this morning to hear. But God is active in the sending to the wilderness. But God does not abandon us in the wilderness. He doesn't. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. So they're in the wilderness. The water has run out. Things look very bleak. And keep in mind, he's a teenager. There might be some dehydration or something going on. She is still mothering him and taking care of Ishmael. Um, whatever is physically going on here. 
Verse 16, it says, Then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. She's fully expecting for Ishmael to die right there. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Agar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Agar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Notice, not only did Ishmael survive the wilderness, he learned to thrive in the wilderness. He became an expert with the bow, and he lived in the wilderness of Paran. Now, God's presence and provision in the wilderness when, would be particularly meaningful when Israel would recall this situation, right? Because God would, would take care of them by sending quail and manna from heaven and water out of a rock at least two times. But we will also experience weak times when we feel abandoned. Or we feel particularly vulnerable. Times that God has sent us to that situation for a, for a season. But he doesn't abandon us. God does not abandon us at any of the mundane areas of life. Fourthly, God does not abandon us in the mundane. Fourthly, in daily provision. In daily provision. So... This passage starts with Abraham and Abimelech, and it's going to close with another episode of Abraham and Abimelech. Verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So Abraham comes back into the territory where Abimelech is, the same Abimelech that, had, that in the earlier episode. And Abimelech actually wants to live at peace with Abraham. And he, in fact, Abraham is being blessed by God so much, he sees God's hands of, Abimelech sees God's hand of blessing on him. And he says, hey, promise me, swear to me that you will be good to us and to my offspring. And Abraham says, okay, I will swear. But remember, there is a history of tension and deceitfulness between these two. Which leads us to verse 25. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. 
So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Um, because of Abimelech's prior experience with Abraham lying, Abraham, Abimelech is thinking, I'm glad you swear this to me, but I'm going to need a little more. <laughs> um, and so these animals are taken so they can cut them, presumably in half, like God did earlier in his covenant, and they make this bilateral covenant with one another. Verse 28, Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. So at part of this covenant and in their negotiations, Abraham had dug this well that had been seized by some of Abimelech's people. But now part of this covenant is recognizing that Abraham has the legal rights to this well. And God is taking care of Abraham. So this Isaac who was born to him is going to have a peaceful situation to grow up in and to be nurtured in. Verse 31, therefore that place was called Beersheba. The word means like an oath or swearing in, as part of it because they're both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So at the end of this, Abraham plants a tree that is going to continue to grow and is always for years to his next generations and their servants, it's going to recall this covenant that God or that Abraham and Abimelech had made, but it's also going to recall the faithfulness of God and God taking care of their daily needs. So God does not abandon us in the mundane, right? He does not abandon us in times of irrational fear. He does not abandon us in the process of aging. He doesn't abandon us in the wilderness, and he doesn't demand, he doesn't abandon us in our, in daily provision. And it says here at the end that Abraham calls upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, a new name or another aspect of God's character and nature that we find out about in this, uh, this narrative of Genesis, El Olan, everlasting God, God of the ages. Mundane, that word mundane, it's really a term that's relative to our experience. Because God is always present. God is always at work for those who put their trust in Christ. And really... When it comes down to it, there is no mundane from God's perspective. Mundane is something that's always from our perspective. Because God is always here with us. He's ready to be worshipped and to be fellowshiped with. Based on the merits of Christ and our faith and trust in Him. Let me just real quickly say a word. There's a lot of questions. We were talking about it this morning. Um, You've seen in national news and social media of uh, is this or is this not a true revival that's going on in 
uh, up at Asbury in, in Kentucky, and there's questions about that. I think something good that would remind us is something that Jonathan Edwards, who was part of Great Awakenings in um, the 19th century, um, that he wrote because there were a lot of counterfeit revivals, people becoming part of, of things. So in, in asking ourselves, is this or is this not a real thing? And this is certainly what people seem to be experiencing is not part of, it doesn't seem to be mundane. But here are some things that help us think about and identifying whether or not it's a true work of God. This comes from Jonathan Edwards, and I think the book was called Marks of um, the Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God. He had five things. First of all, Jesus is exalted. Jesus is made much of. Secondly, the Holy Spirit acts against the influence of Satan's kingdom in a real revival. That is, it's going to have some some social ramifications as people get saved. Uh, Number three, the Bible is exalted and held in high regard in a true work of the Spirit of God. The Bible is not set to the side. It's a feature. It is highlighted. Fourthly, sound doctrine is taught and promoted. Truth reigns. And fifthly, love to God and and love to man is promoted. I think those are five pretty good distinguishing marks that Jonathan Edwards came up with that help us today. That's just kind of a side note. Um, But the rest of us, it seems like, we... We, we cry out for revival at times, and that's a great thing for us to pray to God for and to seek God's face for, not just in a, our, our local body, but regionally and nationally. I mean, there's no secret. The trajectory that our country is on, without an intervention, a divine, supernatural intervention of God, bad things are in store for us, Okay? And that's something that we should be praying for. Whether or not God sends national revival and awakening is up to Him. But we can go to Him and we can beg Him for that. But there are times in our life that, let's just be honest, are mundane. Just like the other 2,399 seconds in a basketball game that don't seem that special. But with God, there is no real mundane. Many of the pilgrims that were in Jerusalem on that weekend, that Passover weekend that Jesus was crucified, they looked, and what did they see? They saw three common criminals on on crosses. But on that middle cross, on that middle cross, inestimable things were occurring. And so the naturalist has his worldview and looks into our world and sees no significance of the mundane. In fact, they become depressed. But the believer, the believer understands that there is no real mundane because God's present presence is ever with us. He is the everlasting, ever-present God. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes. Worship team is coming forward. Father, I think there's even a a sense um, where where people feel sometimes that that even 
pastors and church leaders or whatever are never experience the mundane. And Father, you know, and I know that's certainly not true. Most of our lives, even pastoring and preaching and teaching the Bible, um, most of it is day in, day out things that, that we do that forms character. But in that whole process, you are maturing and you're developing us in the Christ image. So Lord, help us not to repudiate the mundane or the difficult times of life, but to recognize them and see them as time of maturing. Just like something that's being baked or cooked in an oven. That's, of course, a a smaller scale. But Lord, you are maturing in the process of everyday life. And so, Lord, we don't fall into the trap of getting addicted to our emotions and having emotional highs. We don't have to have a, a youth camp experience every day or every week because you are ever-present. Yes, there are times in your life where it is, it is more, your presence is more dramatic. And we, and we get the feelings and everything that goes along with that. And we love that. We do long for that. But we also understand that that's not always the way your spirit works. I'm thankful that even when we don't see it, when it doesn't seem like you're here or you're working, you are. And we have objective reasons to know that you are. Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your everlasting, unchanging character. You are the same God that worked in Abraham's life who is working today, that is forming a body, a bride for your son. And we have that hope. And we we call out to those among us to, to come and be part of the bride of Christ and for them to hear and believe on the gospel and their lives be changed, their eternities be changed. And we do that not just on our behalf, but because of you, for your glory. And so, God, part of our heart cry for revival is not just that you would save a culture, save a nation, but that you would be glorified first and foremost above all things. And we look forward to that day that the bride of Christ is presented to him. And we will be with you and him for all of eternity, reigning with him. There is nothing mundane about that. And we are excited about that. We put our hope and we put our faith in what you have said and what you have revealed in your word. Lord, there's people here this morning that are struggling with maybe one of the things that, I've, that we, we said from the text. And I ask that you would um, just step into their lives, that your presence would be tangible for them, that you would comfort them, um, that you would um, enlighten and illuminate our eyes around them so that we can see needs and that we can minister um, where you would have us to do that. And we come together and encourage and love one another as we see the day approaching. Lord, we praise you because you are an everlasting ever-present, faithful God. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, would you stand to your feet? We have this platform that we call an altar. Um, it's, we use it as a place that we can humble ourselves before God.
You can pray before God where you're at, but if you feel like you especially need to humble yourself before him, spend time with him, you can come here this morning. If you need to talk with someone, you, you need prayer about something, I'm here, Pastor Jared's here, and we have others who can pray with you, and we would love to do that this morning. And if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not only is life mundane for you, it has no purpose. It has no function. It has no end goal. And maybe that's something God has revealed to you this morning and you want that to change right now. You can come forward and talk with us and you pray where you're at. Cry out to God that you need Christ to be your savior because you're a sinner and you cannot save yourself. You repent of doing the wet things and doing things the way that you've done them in the past and put your faith and trust in him, in Jesus. Our worship team is going to sing, but if you need to do business with God, come forward this morning.